Praise be to God. As we open the text today, looking at a, a summary I, I put at the top and throughout your notes, do we prioritize our preferences over God's proven true words? This portion of scripture I've been avoiding teaching on, I've heard sermons on, and I, I gotta be honest, there's nothing, nothing there. It's like, man, one day I'll get something out of that. Not today. And, and it's just one of those things where I hear it, the, the whole resurrection thing's helpful, the David, my Lord says to my Lord, I'm like, I got, I heard an hour plus sermon, I got nothing. I, I don't, I really didn't see where it was going. And then in like 10 seconds of reading it, God opened my eyes. He's like, it's, it's all about the resurrection. It's right there, Brandon. I'm like, you're right, I'm an idiot. Holy Spirit, convict me, teach me. So I pray that as we look at this simple summary, prioritizing personal preferences over God's proven true words. God's word is proven true over and over, but it's, it's not that his word is really that difficult, but it's that we prioritize our personal preferences over it. And so we, we don't allow God's word to get into our hearts. We don't allow the, the power of God's word because we don't understand it, we don't submit to it. Whenever Jesus went around doing amazing miracles and works, it was the places he went to that he couldn't do miracles because of their unbelief. They were prioritizing their personal preferences over the word living among them. And, and so here we see the most just in your face, knock down, drag out, evidence for the power of the resurrection. We see that the personal preferences that, that have been prioritized of the, the ideas of, of resurrection have been, have been around for some time. We see there's an Egyptian book of, of death that the, the Pharaoh would need a, a sailboat, so oftentimes he'd be you know buried in, in the mummified with all these cats and gold and silver to, to pay for the, the ferry. And, and the Greeks kind of followed that, that resurrected new life, the on the other side resurrected idea with putting coins on, on their, the dead soldier's eyes or, or the warrior's eyes or the, the dead's eyes to pay the ferry, right? To, to get across from one shore to the other. Um, obviously they probably didn't have inflation because I'd be super worried. Like if I died, would I have enough? Like how much is gonna be enough to get me across the, the way and in the American or the Native American Indians, when when a warrior died, they would bury him with a bow and arrow and a horse because they, obviously you need that on the other side when you when you rose again and and so there's always been this this personal preference about what the next life is going to be or what it's going to look like and all the different religions kind of have different takes on. You know, are you going to be reincarnated or are you going to show back up and, and how does this work? And around the first century AD, there's, there's some writings. One is in Maccabees that tells of an elder whose name was Razis. Rather than fall into the hands of the hated Greeks, he took a sword, disemboweled himself. Then standing on a steep rock, he reached in, says this apocryphal book, and, and tore out his remaining bowels and threw them to the crowd. He, he then died and says the writing calling on him who is Lord of life and spirit to restore them to him again. So he's expecting God to put everything back in 2 Maccabees 14, 46. And this apocryphal, it's not historic, it's not scriptural, 
but it, it indicates this idea of I don't want to fall into the enemy, so I'm going to kill myself, and then I'm going to cry out that this being, this God, will kind of bring me back and put me back together again. There's another first century Jewish writing, Baruch, that has maybe more influence of the cultural mindset of what the resurrection might, have, might be. And he says this, The earth shall then assuredly restore the dead. It shall make no change in their form, but just pop them back out as, as it received them, like a Pop-Tart, only a little bit more toastier maybe, I don't know. And, and so this first century AD writing puts around the time of Christ, and people thought that when you died, you'd be buried, and then eventually the earth would kind of pop you back out in, in, in the next life. You'd be raised in the same way, figure, clothing, you died, so your relationships would, would be the same, you'd be recognizable. And Baruch went on to say, it shall come to pass when they've sev- severely recognized those whom they know now. In other words, they'll come back looking the same way. And, and a lot of the, the Jewish thought of the time was, Basically, the world was God's handiwork creation, so it was basically like what we know now as a pinball machine. So wherever you are in the world, you'd be buried, and your body would go into the caverns under the world, and there'd be these little bumpers pushing your body around, and then the resurrection, you'd, you'd come back up to life, not at the like next shot, but in Jerusalem. That was the thought. Like The Jewish rabbis were like, don't worry, if you go on vacation to Hawaii and you die there, your body will just go into the cavern and it'll just roll you back to Jerusalem. And so there's always been this personal preference that's elevated and prioritized over God's proven true words. And so I hope today as we look at scripture, we see God's made promises over and over that the resurrection will will be there, that Jesus is the resurrection, that God is the God of the living. And so we see, first off, that the, the Sadducees were, were super angry, legalistic, and, and they were committed to pursuing power, position of authority, and possessions. In the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' last week, and this is the, the final part of his conversation on Wednesday leading up to the cross. So a couple weeks ago, Easter, we jumped from that week leading up to the cross all the way to post-resurrection where Jesus rose, ascended, and his disciples went out proclaiming in Jesus' name, and healings were happening to, to confirm that the gospel's true, that God is the living God who's reigning in heaven, and, and the world had to deal with that power, that just Jesus' name was enough to save, and that he died in our place, but then walked out of the grave. And so as we see him talking about the resurrection, to the people who literally did not believe in the resurrection. The, the Sadducees were the ruling class. That They were few, but they were powerful. That's why we don't read much about them. Typically, it's the Pharisees we see interacting with Jesus. But the Sadducees were the chief priests. They were the scribes. They were the rulers on the Temple Mount. They were making the big bucks. So now that Jesus drove them out, flipping their tables over, ruining their business, this is Wednesday leading up to, to Friday where he's killed, so now we know the history backdrop, the timing, the people, or the Sadducees. We see that, that they, they just don't understand, so they just ridicule the resurrection. Their personal preference is that in Acts 23, verse 8, the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees, in contrast, acknowledge them all. So they're, they're typically at odds, uh, but here they join forces because they need to get Jesus 
removed. They need to silence him. They don't necessarily want him killed, but they definitely need to silence him. So they're trying to trip him up. And so they're like, perfect. Resurrection. Like, who knows about the resurrection? Everyone's got these weird ideas. We'll just throw this at him. And the Pharisees are like, good luck. Have fun. So the Sadducees ridicule, and they come up with this crazy idea that their seven brothers first took a wife and died without children in verse 30, and the second, in verse 31, then the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. So then the woman dies. Then in the resurrection, whose wife? So their personal preferences, see, we can't figure, so we're just going to not believe it. We haven't really seen angels. People think they like pop up here and there. We're just not going to believe angels. We're not going to believe this. We're not going to believe the Spirit. And so they bring this to Jesus. And it's interesting, as we see in Psalm 16, 9, the psalmist writes, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, knowing the promise of the resurrection. Daniel 12, 2 says again, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame. And everlasting contempt. So the resurrection is a reality where we're resurrected to life or to contempt, to, to be in heaven with God forever or in hell and punishment, or separated from God forever. And so when, when the context, when they're having this conversation, Jesus in verse 34 says to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage for now. This is the, the situation that's set up now. And we see that they didn't understand this age. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 25, he gave the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the five book, first books of the Bible, it's called the Pentateuch, and the Sadducees held white-knuckled fists tight to the five books. That's all they believed. They just, because then they could control the Temple Mount based on that law, and they would authorize or deauthorize sacrifices and that's how they made all their money. So so they're going they conjured up this this narrative off of Deuteronomy 25 which says that if someone's husband dies then the husband's brother shall take her to himself and as a wife and marry her perform the duty of a husband's brother to her and it shall be that the firstborn she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother that this name may not be blotted out from Israel. This is when God promised Israel the promised land before they entered it. And as, as you know, if those of you have been around kids, they're crazy, there's a ball of energy, but they are useful. Like there's an age where they can actually do stuff. And it's amazing. Like once they figure out how to clean up after themselves, more or less, you can like give them chores. So God's like, here's this whole land, you have to control it, take care of it, and, and it's yours. And your family's not gonna lose this inheritance, and you need the family name to continue. You need your family to continue. So that's the context of why Moses said this in Deuteronomy, because it was God's plan, and that's where we get this levere marriage, Latin meaning your brother, this brother marriage situation. The Sadducees know the Pentateuch, and they know the law, so they bring it to Jesus, going, we can't figure this thing out. Like, do we still have this weird Deuteronomy 25 law or, or not? And the interesting thing is Ruth we see it play out in scripture. Ruth, Elimelech, you remember, died without ever leaving an heir. And so Ruth goes back to Israel and Elimelech's relative, not brother, but relative, which also fits the, 
The example here, Boaz comes along, takes Ruth as his wife, raised up a child named Obed, and out of Obed comes Jesse, and out of Jesse comes David, David and Goliath. So if you don't know all those names, that's how David showed up. Like all this weird, crazy, because we think our families are like, oh my goodness, my family's the first one to ever have issues. No, it's not. There's been issues for all time, and God said, hey, before I just insert me into this messed up creation, I'm going to find the most messed up family, and I'm going to actually set up something that's going to explain why Ruth is going to show up on Boaz's doorstep, because this is how it was set. My promise, my word is always going to be proven true. So I just can't, I just can only imagine, like the more I get into scripture here, and hopefully you can see this picture, there's Jesus on the temple mount, and the Sadducees are like, dude, we got him, like this is so weird, this is all days of our lives, Jerry Springer, all complicated and gross and nasty, and what do you think, Jesus? He's like, you... Did, did you process my DNA at Ancestry.com? Because that's literally my, that's my family, bro. Like, you just told me my family heritage. That's my great, 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 great grandmother, Ruth. Like, and then, and then Obed, and then Jesse, and then Jesse to David, and David killed Goliath, and then David messed up with Bathsheba, and then Solomon, and then he failed. But hey, I'm the king of kings, Lord of lords. I'm here. You ready to go? And they're like, ah, oh, what? We weren't prepared for that. Like, Pharisees, tag, tap out, I'm done. So literally, to summarize where we're going to end up, their mind is blown. They're talking to Jesus, the Son of God who's in the flesh, who's living this crazy narrative they thought up. And he's like, let me explain the resurrection. I'm the resurrection and the life. Here's the whole reason for marriage, is it's another glimpse, another signpost, another picture of the fact that you as a human you have these personal preferences that you, you put over God's proven word. You, you, you have this hole in your heart. You have this need in you. And, and you look for a spouse and she helps a little bit or he helps a little bit, but they, you're still empty. You're still needing. You're still wanting. And that can only be satisfied in me. And if you're single, like Paul says, it's way better to be single because then you don't have a commitment to a spouse, a husband or a wife. So you could coach soccer, volleyball, and baseball on the same day, and then the next day go to Hawaii for a week and do ministry, and then the next week go to Thailand. And Paul's like, dude, this is the best thing I found. Jesus, now my calendar's all booked to everybody. Who wants a spot? Let's go. Because I see these married guys, and they're like, I, don't, I got a spot in two months. Like, you got two months? I got an hour right here. Like, if the tractor doesn't show up. If the tractor's there, then I'm, I'm six months out. Sorry. Like, I have all these sports games and family things, and... And so he acknowledges, Jesus is like, hey, Genesis 1, God created male and female in his image and said, now make babies populate the earth. So this marriage thing is for this age, if you'd understand it, but you don't, and you don't understand the resurrection because you don't love God and love his word. If you loved God and loved his word, then you would understand that this age was actually for me to be here because of Deuteronomy 25 and for the nation of Israel to be here so that God can put on his display of love. While we're in sin, God showed his love for us that while we were sinning, Christ died for us. That would not have happened unless God said this. And the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection or the Holy Spirit. And they didn't, they were so sad, they didn't get it. They didn't love God or his word. 
And we see this same religion stealing the joy of what true resurrected life is. Where, where Mormon theology thinks that marriage is this just continual sex and the celestial marriages with multiple women and multiple spirit babies floating around and then Islam teaches that there's this, these green pillows and 72 virgins to continue to indulge in sensual pleasure. And it's, it's interesting how the, the like new next life is always a continuation of what you want here. I want to be a warrior, so I need a bow and arrow. I want to have, be rich, so I need all my gold. I want more pleasure sensually, so I want a bunch of virgins. Like, really? Every time I think about it, I'm like, we are so, so quick to settle for second best. But I wouldn't even give us that much credit. I think we settle for 10th best. We're just like, ah, whatever. There's something so much greater. And Jesus is here saying, come to me. I'm the resurrection and the life. I've always planned it out this way. God the Father planned it. I'm here, the Son, to accomplish it. And then I'm going to send the Spirit but you haven't even submitted to God the Father's plan yet. So you can't handle the fact that the Son is here, much less the promise of the Holy Spirit teaching you and empowering you and gifting you to go love like me and give like me. So let me let you experience me for a minute and my, my Father's plan. There's no death in, in, in the resurrected life. He says, for those, in verse 35, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Who's worthy? Those who believed in Jesus and had his blood cover their sin. Those are the ones who are worthy. Are, are, are we allowing God's word to define our reality? Or are we still putting our preferences prioritizing our personal preferences above God's proven word that's true. Because if God's proven word is true and says we're in sin, we need a savior, then are we every day preaching the gospel to ourselves so that when the enemy attacks or our flesh is weak, we're like, nope, the spirit's willing, but the body's weak. I'm gonna submit to the gospel. Holy Spirit, fill me up, strengthen me. Oh, there's an attack, I'm gonna pray against that. Is our reality defined by God's words? When we stand before a holy and just God, as Jesus has them standing before him, and they're telling him, we've prioritized our personal preference above your word. We don't, I mean, we hold tight to this, but we don't really know what, what this is. When we stand before a holy and just God, and he's like, hey, Brandon, what, what were you thinking when you said that? Am I gonna go, oh, well, it's in your word, or am I gonna say, well, I... I had this emotion and I had this preference, so I, I thought I'd say this because I wanted to make my, my wife happy, so I, I said that, or I wanted to do this, it's so not my word. What, what made you think that thought? I didn't fight against it, I just let my mind go. What made you do this selfishly instead of selflessly serve? Well, it clearly wasn't on your word, I was standing on my own desires and my personal preferences were prioritized above your word again. Like, we're going to give an account for every, and the Bible knows us too well, careless, guilty. Every careless word we say. Jesus corrects them and says, look, for a greater study, you can read 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to the end specifically, but all of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul does a great job unpacking the resurrection and why it's important and reminding us. Jesus is saying, look, for those who are considered worthy, 
When they're resurrected from the dead, they're in the glorified state. So those of us that believe, the offer is available for those who've yet to believe. But those of us who believe, when we believed, we were justified positionally. And then this big word, sanctification, is we're set apart for God's purpose. Where our thoughts, desires, and actions are in line with Christ. And that's a process. Some days are better than others. But God's in control of that. That's what we're resurrected to, a perfect glorified state, when that process is finished. But they didn't understand the resurrection, so they thought it was just a continuation of now, based more on the cultural preference, their personal preference over God's proven word that we're gonna see. Verse 36, he's like, all right, you guys aren't gonna take my word for it, so let's talk about Moses. So verse 36 They cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Meaning there's no more procreation needed. There's a finite number like the angels and the sons of God, that's a term meaning the character. Once we become sons and daughters of God, we take on the character of God. That's referring to the process of us being transformed by God's love to live and give like Christ. See, we think we have power But the only power we really possess is to surrender to Jesus. The rest of it is this guise and the lies of the enemy saying, no, 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 run this way or do this or say this or get this, get this power, get this possession, get in this promotion to this position. Then you'll be sad. You're still hungry for satisfaction. And the only one that can satisfy you is Jesus. It's all him. He created you to need him. And he came to provide that through the gospel and through the resurrection hope. So we see this this beautiful picture here. He says, once we've taken on the character of resurrection, we're good. And he explains it to them, blowing their minds in verse 37, that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Two things here. In Matthew, he says, you don't understand God's word. You don't understand God's word and you don't understand the power of it. And here, when Matthew says God shows up to Moses, Matthew records him saying, I am. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Meaning, not I was. I am. So, I am is God's name, Yahweh, and he's saying they're still alive. Right? Because when your dad passes away, your grandpa passes away, or You know, oh, I was a friend of your dad. I'm sorry for the loss because they're dead now. But God's not saying I was the God of Abraham. Now he's dead. I am the God of, I'm the God of Abraham. He's alive. I'm the God of Isaac. He's alive. And I'm the God of Jacob. If you you ever read the Bible, you'll notice from, from beginning to end, somewhere in the first kind of third, Jacob's name changes from Jacob, the screwed up, messed up, liar, thief, just swindler, a mess of a man, God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And then from Israel, from then on, it's all good and he's following God. And so it's interesting whenever we see in the New Testament, God's not referring to himself and even to Moses. He doesn't say, hey Moses, I'm the God of Israel. Look how much, I took a mess and I made it a masterpiece. I took ashes and I made it beautiful. God doesn't say that. God says, hey, I'm the God of that mess. Remember the mess of a man? Jake, yeah, I'm that, I'm the God of him. Which for us, if your marriage is struggling, you're like, ooh, the resurrection, that's a little relief. I can't wait for that. 
Some of you, you're like, man, this is hard. I don't like this message. I'm going to talk to Brandon about the heaven and what it's all about. That's one of my hesitations about going into heaven because then I become the expert. It's like, I don't know all there is to, are we going to have like red shoes or black shoes? I don't know. Are we going to have shoes? Are we going to surf all the time? I hope so. I think the new earth, there's going to be some perfect waves, but I digress. We come here and it's, it's the reality of understanding the resurrection, submitting to God's promise to take the mess of our lives and to make it beautiful and glorify it one day. God's not ashamed to say, I know the mess you're in and I can redeem it. Will you surrender to me? Will you let me come in and fix that brokenness? Will you let me come in and make that empty part of you whole? And that's where the comfort is because some of your marriages are so hard or your spouse is not here. And that breaks my heart and it breaks yours. And, and God's like, I know, and I'm with you through that. I'm the God of Jacob. So that should comfort us as we read God of Jacob because it's not, I'm the God of when your life cleans up. I'm the God of when everything's restored. I'm the God of when it's broken and I'm gonna restore it with you, through you, by my power. And that's important to not read into what God's word says because that's eisegesis. It's what I see in the word. Exegesis is taking what's in the word and pulling out what's there. And that's what Jesus did. He's like, have you read? You love Moses. You're like, that's all you read, the first five books. How many of you love to read the first five books? Not many of us, right? You're like, well, I don't, it's a lot. Jesus is like, let me tell you about the resurrection. Moses learned about the resurrection from the burning bush. And we've all missed it. I missed it. Because I read into that. A burning bush, and I move on. I'm like, that's super weird. Burning bush, anyways, Moses goes and tries to get slaves out of there. I missed the resurrection in the burning bush. All those years, it's right there. But we don't slow down and look at it, and we don't see, and we need Jesus to teach us, which is encouraging. That God is the God of the living. And then we see, moving on to the last part here, after he says that, verse 38, he clarifies, he's not God of the dead, but the living, for all live in him. In verse 39, some of the scribes answered, that's the Sadducees, teacher, you've spoken well, and they no longer dared him to ask any questions. That's, in our translation, they blew his mind. They shut him up, right? Shut down, drop the mic, and then Jesus gets his turn in the debate. He's like, hey, isn't it said, I got a question for you guys, for da in verse 42, David says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? They don't understand the resurrection, so they push back against it. They don't understand the age. Now they're, they don't understand David's son, and, and Jesus knows that. And he's like, you guys are so arrogant. You're the biggest jerks of all the jerks, and you're, you're taking advantage of people and he goes on after he, he puts this out, and he's like, in verse 47, you devour widows' houses for a pretense. You make these long prayers. You're going to receive a greater condemnation because all you want to do is sit in the most popular and the best seats in the house, and you don't even know Scripture. You don't even know why David says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And this is the sermon that I had wrestled with for so long, this part of Scripture, and it's so simple I can talk a lot about it from multiple places, but I just want to leave you with this because he's, Jesus is establishing his authority. He's establishing his power to say, look, if you would submit to me, if you think you're powerful, but if you would surrender to me, then I'll actually give you my love that would transform you to live and give like me. 
because you don't have to worry about anything. And he says, look, Psalm 110, 1 through 4. The Lord is literally translated Yahweh, so God the Father, says to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. So the, God the Father plans our salvation. God the Son accomplishes it, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1. It's Psalms 110. Yahweh says to Jesus, God the Father says to God the Son, Jesus, sit at my right hand. And then all the way at the end, verse 4, you, Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This, this priest that's pointed towards Jesus. In Acts 2, 34 through 36, Peter shares with us again, for David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord, that's Yahweh, God the Father, said to my Lord, that's Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's so simple. I wish the translators would have helped me out instead of having to go back into the Hebrew and the Aramaic and figure it out. It's God the Father saying to God the Son, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make your enemies a footstool. Just come sit at my right hand. We're going to rule together. And this is where he's saying, look, I need to die that I might rise and then ascend to my rightful throne where my power is going to accomplish my purpose through you, but you have to surrender. We think we have the power to control things or control a spouse or control a budget or control the times and everything's going to continue to fall apart. That's why Jesus said, man, my, my heart breaks for you. And the Sadducees who are hearing this, he's saying, look, in 70 AD, when Rome finally has enough of the Jews, surrounds them, attacks them because of the resistance, the temple's destroyed and all the Sadducees are destroyed. You never hear of them again because that was their corrupt business. And God's like, you guys, it's over. Come to me now while there's still time. Because I'm going to sit on my Father's right hand, and I'm the one who saves. I'm the resurrection and the life. And all who come to me, I will not turn away. But you will have the right to receive eternal life. Come and believe and be saved. And Paul, Paul tells us in Romans 1, 3 through 4. He says, regarding his son, who to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Without Jesus dying and rising again, we'd have no good news. Without him, and that's why he's telling the Sadducees, you guys are missing it. You don't believe in the resurrection. You don't believe in angels. You don't believe in the spirit. That's literally what I, my whole life, like 33 years, the angel showed up, told Mary I was gonna be born. You didn't believe in that. You haven't believed in all these miracles and the spirit doing this power, which I've told my apostles and now Many years later, that's us under the apostles. If you want an org chart, it's Jesus, apostles, us. So we're, we're, the, the gifting has come through that. The spirit is in us that was in Jesus, that was in the apostles. He's so loving and so patient and so kind to teach them God's word before God dies for them. And the problem is the same thing that was going on then is happening today. The teachers of the law studied God's word, but they manipulated it. They, they eisegesis. They wanted to see what they wanted to see in the text. They read the word through political lens that produced, that reduced the Messiah to a mere analogy of David. We do the same thing in our lenses. Or they read it through an economic lens, turning scripture into advice for financial well-being. Or in recent decades and, and years, the racial lens that edited out scripture that talked about the, the ethnic equality and made a very race, pro-race text. 
or a, fam- or a feminist lens that interprets and rejects scripture as a tract for patriarchal dominance or a postmodern lens that subjectivizes the holy scriptures into what it means to me, which is where we're at with eisegesis. You read scripture and twist it and find the right words that encourage you in your thinking but don't correct you or convict you. And so the importance is to look at God's word and submit to it and not prioritize our personal perspective over God's proven true word and come under the text, not put our ideas or our feelings above it. And that's where we we come to the end here where we see judgment is coming. And he looks at him and is like, you guys, there's a stricter judgment for coming who want to be a teacher. Jesus' brother James in James 3 said, not many of you should want to be teachers because you know those who teach will be judged more strictly. So you guys are like, man, I'm glad he's up there. Yeah, you should be. Uh, This is a real thing. Like Jesus is like, you guys are all fools. I'm giving you one last chance because I'm gonna die and rise again and then within the next couple decades, you're done. Like Rome's gonna kill you. It's gonna be horrible. You need to believe in me now for eternity's sake and for your soul's sake. And we know our hearts when we see our checkbook, right? It's always been said, when you see a man's checkbook, you know your hearts. And that's why the Sadducees were taking advantage and taking money from widows. And the end of... 20 and then into, into 21, he's like calling them out and then looks over and, and as discreetly and, and really just no one even noticed, this widow walks by and, and puts money in. Wednesday afternoon, one of the last things Jesus says, he's like, you guys didn't even see the widow over there, just put two coins in. You guys are all rich and done up and putting all your gifts into the treasury and blowing horns and saying long prayers and wearing fancy clothes and and pointing all the focus on you. This, this widow gave everything she had. You guys are so focused on bird offerings, old shekels, new shekels, transaction money, getting the new chariots, getting the new spinners on the chariot wheels, getting your new shoes, getting your hair all did up, and there's a widow right there, and you guys, you guys even notice her? No? Okay, yeah. Interestingly, she's the one fulfilling the law to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus points that out and, and says, look, verse four, she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Is that possible? Is that possible for us today? As I've brought up multiple times It's not what we give. There's no amount that we should give. It's a heart issue. God wants all of you. So 10%, 100%, it's not enough unless your heart is completely surrendered to him. Unless your mind, your strength, your will is his. And that's what he's saying. As the author of Hebrews writes, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them as the priest saying, your sacrifice is enough, whatever it is. Two little pennies, two little coins, or $100,000. It's all God's anyways. It's not about the money. It's about making a sacrifice. C.S. Lewis says we don't really know, there's no amount, but when we make a sacrifice, it should hurt us. It should keep us from doing the things we want to do to look like the world. So basically saying, look, if you want to sacrifice, that means God's love has transformed you to look or to live and give like Jesus, 100% of you all the time. 
Eric Liddell, who in 1924 took home a gold medal and a bronze medal. And even more impressive for me was the Scottish Rugby Club asked him to be on the team seven times, which is unheard of and unmatched. And, and so he was this phenomenal athlete and could have had the world at his fingertips. And he's like, hey, peace out. My dad was a missionary. I'm gonna go tell people about Jesus in China. All of Christ for all the world, he said. He also said this, that we're all missionaries. Whether, wherever we go, we either bring people closer to Christ or repel them from Christ. It's a great summary. The Sadducees were sad because they were trying to get power, possessions, and positions, and they were pushing people away from Christ. They weren't bringing people to Christ because they didn't love God or his word. And lastly, as we see, Paul has reminded us as believers that our lives, those of us who follow Christ will be marked by either building on Christ's foundation with, with a surrendered life, with his love transforming us to live and give like Christ, that we'd build with, with gold and silver so that at that judgment seat, which is more of a, a, a award ceremony. God would give you awards for all that you've done for him. And everything you did for you is gonna burn up. So I always call it the great bonfire, right? Reward ceremony. And, and Eric Liddell said this, it's been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I've been a young lad, he's from Scotland, so he, I've heard, or I've had my eyes on a different prize, you see. Each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this, reign, this race ends when God gives out the medals. Is it possible for a church to live and give like this widow, who's been fanning into flame the faith of those who, who are following Christ after her, and she's awaiting that Bema seat award ceremony, so, so she doesn't even get to see the crown yet. It just keeps growing every time we mention her name and what she's done. Isn't that amazing? The, the tiniest little surrender in, in the world scheme of things, but God's used that to remind us, hey, when God's love captures our mind and controls our heart, then we live and give like Jesus. When we prioritize personal preferences over God's proven true words, though, we, we miss out on the blessing. When you recognize that all that is in your hands is not all you have, then you're truly free to live. And the resurrection word frees us from the needs that we have in this life that seem to cripple us and truly fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit to, to see the needs around us and how, why, how we might bless them. So why would we prefer what little is in our hands to Jesus, who's promised to come and save us, fill us, restore us, heal any brokenness, mend any hurts, fill us with that love that we might love others like he loved us. And that's the offer for those who've yet to believe. Come, believe, and be saved today. Acknowledging you're a sinner and he's the great savior that wants to save you and, and grow you to love and give like him. For those of us as believers, I'm gonna give you a minute with the communion to think and, and, and reflect and allow the Holy Spirit to remind you Jesus gave his life so that we can find life. And once that life is in us, the Spirit's in us, his love controls us, then we can live and give like Christ. And I'm gonna close us down in prayer right now and then I'll come up and close us in communion in a minute. God, we thank you for today and the offer the offer that you, God, are the true and living God, that other men have come greater minds than mine and have thought of different 
scenarios of what's going to happen once we take that last breath. But we know without a shadow of a doubt that you've already told us and you've been telling us through your word, through every page that points to you, Jesus, being the resurrection and the life, being the one who secured our seat at the table of the wedding feast of the Lamb, who has our name written in the Lamb's book of life, that there'd be no mistake that we are yours and you are ours, that our mind and heart is controlled by your love that we would live and give like you, Jesus, as sons and daughters who've taken on your character, taken on your nature, that we've been adopted as your son and daughter. May we live that confidently this week. We, we pray those, for those now who've yet to believe, maybe now's the time they're turning to you saying, I have sinned and I thought I had power to control my own destiny or my own sin and just try and get the power or possessions or position to gain that satisfaction. We pray now as they surrender to you, they, they would realize they only have power to surrender, to receive the person of Christ as their Lord and Savior, to confess that they have sinned against you, but Jesus, you forgave them and are now making them new. We praise you for being our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.